word, the preaching of his word. You take a copy of the scriptures and remain standing. If you would, turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 6, verses 22 through 34. Hear now the word of the Lord. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. Not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to them, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? Our our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this time now in which we can gather around the Word of God and we can feast on the truths of your Son. And Lord, I pray for every heart here who is truly yours that that is exactly what they would do this morning that they would feast on the truths of who Christ is and the eternal life that is found in Him. But Lord, I want to pray for those who are not yours and those who may think that they are yours but are not yours. Father, I pray that you would open their eyes to see such things, to see the terrible state of their soul and that you would give them the grace they need to flee to Christ. Father, would you come and meet with us now in the Word of God, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, church. It's good to be back with you again. Well, it seems like we have skipped spring altogether. It is now summer. Though it won't last, we are in Missouri. Last night, my wife and I, we were sitting outside enjoying the beautiful weather and just chatting and a little bit lamenting the state of our world and the, uh, the world that our daughters are going to be raised in and will face, thinking through different ways that we need to prepare them to face things that generations past have never even thought about. 
There's a lot of scary stuff going on in our world. It seems like, I don't know, in my opinion, it's been on hyperdrive since 2020, um, but that is the world in which we find ourselves. But if I were to ask you, what, what is the scariest thing, uh, the, the most frightening thing that you as an individual could face in this world, how would you answer that? What, what would it be? What is it that you fear the most? Is it financial ruin? Is it the collapse of our country? Is it the loss of a loved one? How about disease and suffering? Maybe it's family division and strife. Maybe it's bigger. Maybe it's global war or personal failure. Maybe even just isolation and loneliness. No doubt there are many things in this broken and sinful world that can cause us to fear. But I think there is one thing that ought to rise above them all. A particular danger for every human heart that is more fearful than everything we just listed combined. But ironically, is often not feared by those who should fear it the most. Any idea what that is? It's actually deception. Deception. In my estimation, deception is, more, is a more terrifying reality than just about anything in this world. See, the problem with deception is that you don't know that you are deceived. You think that you are right when you are wrong. You think you are doing the right thing when you are actually doing the wrong thing. You think you are in good standing when you are not in good standing. And that is terrifying. This is why if there is any passage of Scripture that ought to cause us to fear, that ought to cause the heart to tremble, it's not all the prophecies about how bad this world is going to get. It's not the book of Revelation. It's not the Olivet Discourse. It's not the passage in 2 Thessalonians that says that there's coming a day when evil will no longer be restrained. That's wild stuff, to be sure. But it compares not to Matthew chapter 7. When many will come to Jesus on the day of judgment who call Him Lord and will say, Lord, Lord, And then he will reply to them, eternally, depart from me. I never knew you. That's truly terrifying. Why are you here? Why do you come to church? If you are a member, why are you a member? If you're one of the many people who just sat through the new member class this morning, why are you seeking to join a church? Why do you call yourself a Christian at all? Why do you fill your life with Christian activity? It's important questions. And as we will see today, motive matters. Because you can do all of those things and not be a Christian. 
In this section, John chapter 6, we are now returning back to the crowds, the same crowds who were ready to make Jesus their king. They're now going to meet him back on the other side of the lake, the, the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is going to show them what the true meaning of the feeding of the 5,000 was all about. And in doing so, he will be confronting some heart-level issues with these Jews who are following him. And the results are absolutely tragic. This discourse, and especially how the people react to it, is on the level of Matthew chapter 7. It is both very tragic and very sobering. But there is also glory and wonderful promises in the words of Christ here for those who have ears to hear it. But we're going to look at this, this whole thing. We're going to see the glory. We're going to see the warnings. And we need to embrace both. We need to heed the warnings. Today, we're, we're just going to look at the very beginning of this discourse. We're only going to get to verse 29. But there is, there is much to unfold here. And we need to start by looking at this, how, how this whole thing is, is just set up and how the whole thing got started. So we're going to look at this beginning in two parts. First, we're going to look at how John frames this whole discourse, uh, the events that take place that set the stage. In his words, there's several details that we should not miss. And then second, we're going to look at the initial confrontation on the part of Christ uh, that begins this entire discourse. And what I believe we're going to see here, what Jesus is establishing right away, is that true religion is not a matter of externals. It is a matter of the heart. It is a matter of what the heart truly believes about Christ. One's outward actions or claims do not make them a Christian. Now, one's outward actions matter, to be sure. You can't live a life contrary to the Word of God and call yourself a Christian in any way. But religious activity no matter how consistent or how zealous, is not what makes you a Christian. It is a matter of the heart. And that is the, the issue that Jesus will go after. He goes right to the heart of the matter. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. So let's, let's look at this. And let's, let's start by looking at the way that John sets up this, this whole discourse. Look at verse 22. He says this, <clears throat> on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So in this section, in this narrative, John is continuing to show that there is tight chronology of everything that is going on. He does not use his kind of standard after this, but rather he says on the next day. Because all of chapter 6 is meant to be taken together. It's, it's a unit. On the day prior was the day that the crowd had journeyed their way around the north side of the lake to find Jesus, and they had received a miraculous meal. As Jesus fed this massive group from just five barley loaves and two fish. 
Overnight, the disciples had returned by boat, fighting the storm all night long, and Jesus simply walked across the sea with ease, revealing his glory all the more to his disciples. However, the, the crowd didn't see that, nor did they know anything about what had happened overnight. Likely, eat, after eating themselves full, many of them found a nice place in the green grass that John had mentioned and just stayed the night to rest from their trek over, having been satisfied from the food. But now, here we are on the next day, and they are immediately looking for Christ. Likely for this very same reason that we left off back in verse 15. They were wanting to make him their king. However, they had clearly recognized that the disciples had left Christ. They likely saw them depart alone the night before, and their boat was still gone. But Jesus was nowhere to be found. So look at verse 23. It says, Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So recognizing that Christ and his disciples were not there, Many of them boarded some boats that had come down from Tiberias to head back to Capernaum. Now, there's three things that John mentions here in these verses that we need need to catch that's meant to help frame everything that's going on. The first and, and most obvious one is in verse 23, that he again reminds his readers that they were where they were because they had eaten the bread. Everything that is coming is going to unfold the meaning of that miracle. And John does not want you to lose sight of that. Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 had a greater point than simple mercy ministry. He wasn't just feeding the poor and moving on. Yes, he was, he was moved for compassion for them, and he did meet their physical need, but all of it had a point. And this discourse is the explanation of what the point was. We are meant to see that. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want you to see from John's word here is going to take a little bit more explanation. But I want you to notice that he is intentional to again bring up the fact that they ate after Jesus had given thanks. The question is, why does he do that? Why does does he bring that little detail back up? It actually doesn't help us remember where they were or what happened. That's already clear. We already get that. So why why this extra detail? Well, the giving of thanks certainly was a standard Jewish custom. But given the fact that John not only mentions it here, but it was emphasized back in verse 11 before the feeding... I think there's actually something else going on here that's, that's very subtle on the part of John. The Greek word that he employs here for giving thanks is one that might sound familiar to some of you, especially if you have a Roman Catholic background. It is the Greek word eucharistheo, from which we get the, the word eucharist. Now, if you've come out of Catholicism, that word has some understandable baggage to it. Because as you have known it, Eucharist simply does not refer to the giving of thanks, which was the actual first act of the Lord's Supper, 
but it refers to, the Catholic Eucharist refers to the heart of their Mass, and it is a blasphemous re-sacrifice of Christ. In their doctrine, through the bread and the cup, Jesus is actually re-sacrificed just as He was on the cross. The bread and the wine become the actual body of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Christ re-sacrifices Himself through the ministry of the Catholic priest. That is what they teach, and it is, it is utter blasphemy, and it is directly contrary to the gospel. Roman Catholics, let's, let's be clear, have a different gospel. They do. And this is just one of many problems, but this is a massive, massive part of it. Because our hope, according to the Scripture, is that the perfect Lamb of God was sacrificed once and thus satisfied the wrath of God. That's what the Scripture teaches. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Or how about Hebrews 10? It's even more clear. Every priest, speaking of Jewish priests, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. A re-presentation of the sacrifice of Christ, a re-sacrifice of Christ is blasphemy. It just is. It is to say that his once-for-all sacrifice was not enough. The Roman Catholic Eucharist is heresy. Period. Now, having established that, the baggage that comes with this word Eucharist should not be in view here. That doctrine came hundreds of years after the New Testament was written. So to speak of the Eucharist in New Testament terms can be shorthand to speak of the Lord's Supper. Because every reference to the Lord's Supper that we have in the New Testament starts with the giving of thanks. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say when he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them in the institution of the Lord's Supper. And then the Apostle Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, The Lord Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, He took the bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it, and He gave it to them. The same word is used every time. Eucharisteo, the giving of thanks. And it's the same word that John employs here and back in verse 11. Now, because of that, There is a big debate on how much of the Lord's Supper should be in view in this text, especially when you get down to verse 53, and Jesus begins to say that one must eat his flesh and drink his blood for eternal life. Because of those themes, some say that Jesus is actually directly teaching on the Lord's Supper in this discourse. 
And of course, the Catholics would say that this is him teaching the sacrament of the Mass. Others would say, no, it shouldn't be viewed at all because the Lord had not instituted the Lord's Supper by this time. There is no church at this time, so that would be an anachronism. That would be to take something that happened later and read it into an earlier situation. I actually think both of those views are somewhat right, but they're both wrong. To say that Jesus is teaching directly on the institution of the Lord's Supper would indeed be anachronistic. There's no question about that. But more important than that, it would put you in a position of seeing the Lord's Supper and participation in it as a means of saving grace. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. That's what Jesus said. If by that he means that participation in the ordinances or the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, then you have a works-based gospel, which, as we will see, is the very opposite of everything that he's saying in this discourse. It's the very opposite of the entire point. It's actually to take Jesus' main point and flip it on its head, which is exactly what Roman Catholics do. But on the other hand, to say that this is all coincidence and has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper is actually a pretty silly conclusion to make. No Christian can, can read this and avoid these implications. They are there with a purpose. And John wrote it in such a way that we should not miss that. So then what do, what do we do with this? How do we, how do we make sense of this? I believe what is going on here, <clears throat> while Jesus isn't directly teaching on the participation in the Lord's Supper, he is teaching on the same truths and principles that lie under the Lord's Supper. The provision of his body and his blood and our participation in his death by faith is our singular hope and access to eternal life. It's not participation in the Lord's Supper that grants us eternal life. It is participation in His death by faith that grants eternal life. And that's precisely what the Lord's Supper represents. And that is why the feeding of the 5,000 represents the same thing as the, what the Lord's Supper represents, the provision of the body and the blood of Christ. That in the giving of Himself, Christ has provided the only means by which one may have eternal life life. Our hope is wrapped up in who Christ is and what he has done. That's what the feeding is meant to point to. That is what the discourse is all about. And that's what we proclaim when we participate in the Lord's Supper. They are all tied together. And I believe John wants his readers to see that, which is why he very purposely reminds us that the Lord began this meal in a familiar way to Christian readers with the giving of thanks, Eucharisteo, signaling the ultimate provision that is found in Him, which is the ultimate provision for which we ought to always be giving thanks. It's Christ. He is the center of our salvation. Not us, not our works, not our good deeds. It's Christ. We're going to see that. Now, certainly that's a lot of explanation just to understand one word that John used, but it frames this whole 
discourse, helps us to understand a lot of what is going on here. But there's one more thing I want to point out that John does while framing things. The third thing here is the description of what the crowd was after in verse 24. Look back at verse 24. It says, So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. There is emphasis there in what they were doing. Now, obviously, I don't think all the crowds got into the boats. I don't think that's what John was saying. There's just there were simply too many. Uh, many of them had likely returned on foot. But whatever boats were available, the crowd loaded them up and crossed the Sea of Galilee. Why? Not to go home. Not to go back to their normal, everyday lives. But they were seeking Jesus. That's what they're after. That's what we are meant to see. They're following Christ. They are seeking Jesus. They're willing to traverse land and sea to follow after Him. And they want to make Him King. They are, by all outward appearances, Jesus seekers. And isn't that who we are all supposed to be? I mean, as followers of Christ, are we not to be defined by those who are, as those who are seeking Jesus? What are you doing with your life? I am seeking Jesus. That's a good answer. In fact, back in in chapter 1, when Jesus had his first introduction to his disciples, this was his opening questioning to them. He uses the exact same language. I think John's intentionally tying this together. Back in chapter 1, Jesus' first two disciples who started following him, one of them was actually John, the other was Andrew, they were following him, and it says this in verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? What's the right answer to that? How would a true follower of Christ answer that question? Would it not be you? We're seeking you, Jesus. You are the Lamb of God. You are the Christ. We are seeking you. We're seeking after Jesus. Indeed, it would. True followers of Christ are those who are seeking after Christ. We are to be a people who are seeking Jesus. And John wants you to see that this is a people who are seeking Jesus. And so Jesus at this time has a massive following. His numbers are growing by the thousands, and the people are excited about Him. His ministry is on the rise, and His followers are many, and they are zealous. By all outward appearances, this is, this is fantastic. God is blessing His ministry. The preaching and the works of Christ are successful by all outward and worldly standards. So with that scene being set, let's now see how, how Jesus handles this, this massive crowd that He has garnered. Look at His initial confrontation with them. Look at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Notice, the the Jews are now calling him Rabbi. That's an honorific term. That's no small thing in Jewish culture. They consider him to be a teacher, a religious teacher, a teacher of the truth. They're, They're considering him to be their teacher. And when they arrived back on the other side, 
they clearly had been taking some time to look for Christ. John starts off with, when they found him. This crowd is zealous. They've been searching everywhere for him. And when they finally found him, they honor him with their address. They ask him a logical question. Rabbi, when, when did you come here? Now, remember, they saw the disciples leave without him. They knew that there wasn't another boat that could have taken him over. So embedded in this question is not only when did you get here, but how did you get here? Now, at this point, Jesus, Jesus could have easily just told them what he did. Oh, I, I walked across the sea. <laughs> and he could have demonstrated that to them. And in doing so, he, he, he would have increased his zeal for them. And no doubt, it would have actually made his following grow as they spread out and continue to tell others about what Jesus could do. If ever there was an opportunity for Jesus' following to just snowball and take off, this was it. This was a pivotal moment in the ministry of Christ. The disciples are likely looking on with anticipation about how he's going to handle this and what he's going to say here to the crowd. But Christ gives a very surprising response to their zeal and excitement about him. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Whoa. Jesus just completely bypassed their question, just outright ignored it. And instead, he, he confronts their motives. If you had not read this passage before, I don't think this is the response that you would have anticipated or expected. Nor is it the response that any one of us would have given if we had a following like this. Oh, we, we, have, a, we have a platform now. We have an opportunity. Let's be very careful with what we say. We don't want to mess up the, the opportunity that God has given us. I assure you, when Jesus said this, the error was let out of the room. The, the smiles and the excitement that the crowd had because they finally found Jesus, the miracle worker, just shifted from joy to bewilderment, maybe even mixed with frustration and offense. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Who are you to tell me why I'm here? Who are you to judge my motives? Well, he is God. And as he has done repeatedly throughout the Gospel of John, he shows himself to be the one who knows the hearts of men. He knows why they are here. And he tells them, you're seeking me, sure. That's clear. You traversed sea, looking everywhere. You're seeking me. But not because you saw the signs, but because you got something you want. The desires of the flesh. You ate your fill. This was a, a very in-your-face opening remark to this whole discourse. This was a, a confrontation from the get-go. But we need to ask, what does he mean by saying that you're seeking me not because you saw the signs? Because it would seem just a few verses earlier that John says the very opposite. Look back at verse 14. 
After Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves, it says this. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So the people clearly saw the sign. John notates that. And even more than that, seeing the sign, they had come to a conclusion about Christ, and they wanted to even make him king. So why is Jesus saying that they are seeking him not because they saw the sign? Well, as we touched on a couple of weeks ago, a sign, by its very definition, is a pointer. It is an indicator of a greater reality. And though they physically saw the sign and came to certain conclusions, they did not truly see the sign and perceive the actual meaning of what it was pointing to, coming to right conclusions. They came to a conclusion that this was a man who could meet their physical needs, but the sign was pointing to the reality that this was the only man who could meet their spiritual needs, and they missed it. See, they're not seeking Jesus for who he is. They were seeking Jesus for what he could do, for what he could add to their lives. And Jesus just immediately calls them out on it from first sentence. Now, one might ask, was that really necessary? I think the American pragmatist looking to build a big church and a big following would especially struggle with Jesus' tactic here. I mean, why not just use this platform to, to teach them and bring them along? You, you don't have to lie to them, but you didn't have to tell them that. You don't have to confront them in such a, a straightforward and offensive manner. God's given you an opportunity. Just, just bring them along. Why did you do this, Jesus? I can tell you without question why Jesus did this. Because he loves them too much to affirm them in their deception. Deceived people are in the most dangerous position in the entire world. Because they think they are, they fully think that they are something when they are not. And to go along with that would be to play into their deception. So Jesus opens this, essentially tells them, you are not what you think you are. You think you are my followers, but you're not. But he doesn't leave them there. He immediately tells them where they can find hope. Look at verse 27. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. As Jesus often does, he diagnoses the heart and he confronts people exactly in the place where they need to be confronted. Much like the rich young ruler in, in Mark chapter 10, the, the man who came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, I have kept all the commandments from my youth. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds to him, You've kept all the commandments? Okay. Go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. Now, Jesus wasn't saying there that everyone who wants to inherit eternal life must sell everything they have and give to the poor. He's not preaching a poverty gospel. 
but he diagnosed the heart of that man. His possessions meant more to him than the Christ he was standing before. And Christ knew it. And he was, he was, he was not willing to give up the temporal for the eternal. And Jesus put him in a position where he would be confronted with that reality, where he would face the truth of his own heart. He diagnosed his heart on the spot. Well, in a very similar manner, Jesus here diagnoses the heart of this crowd. Now, by saying, do not work for the food that perishes, that is, that is not to be misunderstood as Jesus condemning hard labor in this world in order to put temporal food on the table. That is, that is not at all what is meant here. In fact, Scripture would say the opposite. The Scripture says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. It also says that those who do not provide for their own household are worse than unbelievers. The Scripture commends working hard to temporally provide. Jesus is not talking about that. What Jesus is confronting here is the religious effort being put forth for that which is temporal. They had an earthly view of the kingdom, an earthly view of their needs, and they wanted a Messiah to serve their worldly and temporary needs. And Jesus is just putting it in straightforward terms. You, you are working for, you are striving after, you are chasing that which perishes. The summation of your hope and efforts is aimed at that which is passing away. Your God is your belly. Your worldly appetites is what is driving your religion. And it's driving your perception of the Messiah and your perception of the kingdom. They were following Christ for worldly gain. And don't, don't think that we have grown out of that. Don't think that's limited to the prosperity gospel either. Yes, that's obvious. But so many people in good, solid churches are there because they're hoping for temporal benefits in their lives. There is, there's a thousand reasons why you could be sitting in this room today other than Christ. But look again at what Jesus says we are to be after. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. In mercy... He directly tells this crowd exactly what they should do, what they should be seeking after, the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Jesus makes it clear that they should be after a different kind of food, food that leads to eternal life. And He makes it clear that this eternal life is actually a gift, eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. He just told them, who he is and what he can do. Bestow life, true life. This is the same thing that Jesus said back in the discourse with the Jewish leaders in chapter 5 when he was in Jerusalem. That it is the, the Son of Man who has the prerogative to bestow life and that his authority has been sealed and certified by the Father. That's what's going on here. The Father has marked him out as his agent to bestow eternal life. That's what he means by this sealing. The same idea was back in chapter 5. 
For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Son is the the giver of eternal life, and God the Father has sealed Him as such, certified Him as such. And the signs that Jesus performs bear witness to that. This, This particular sign bears witness to the reality that Jesus is that food that He is talking about. He is the food that leads to eternal life. That is the food that they should be after. That is the food that you should be after. It's it's Christ Himself. But their, their response to all of this demonstrates how hard their hearts truly were. How, how deceived they actually were. Look, look what he says, verse 28. Look what the crowd says. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? What a, what a tragic response. Of all the things that they could have asked him for clarity on, of all the incredible things that Jesus just revealed in a couple of sentences... This is what they chose to focus on. They don't ask for clarity on the food that endures to eternal life or the Son of Man who gives eternal life or on God the Father's seal that's been placed upon Him and all that that means. All of which is where Jesus is placing the emphasis. Jesus is emphasizing the gift of eternal life given by Him under the authority of the Father and they want to ask about works. All right, just tell us what to do. What works do we need to do? They actually use the same word twice here, the verbal form and the noun form. Literally, it reads, what must we do to be working the works of God? How do we earn this thing? What boxes do we have to check? How do I please God? What do I have to do to appease Him? What are the works that God requires of us? That's what they're asking. Just give me a list. They utterly missed it. But is this not the default position of the human heart? The truth is we are all born wanting to control things, thinking we can control things, just wanting to meet the requirements so that we can move on to the things we really care about. This is why the world is full of false religions that are all Every single one of them based upon works. Every single false religion is a satanic creation. And Satan knows what will lure the human heart. A sense of control. A sense of self-righteousness. If I just obey the rules, I'll earn my salvation. I'll earn heaven. I'll achieve nirvana. I'll be a good person. I'll become like God. I'll earn forgiveness. All actual goals of false religions. Whatever the goal, though, whatever the the religion, it's ultimately the same mechanism. Do this, get that. It works. And it all feeds into human pride. And what, what is so deceiving about it, especially in religion, is that it's pride that's often cloaked in humility. 
human achievement cloaked in service to God. Just give me a list that I can do. But Jesus, Jesus goes right after them here. They want to focus on works, so he gives them a work. And paradoxically, he gives them a work that is no work at all. Look at his reply. He says this, verse 29. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's it. Believe. That's it. Now think about what just happened here. And Jesus rebuked them for seeking him for their own desires. Then he tried to redirect their attention away from themselves and their fixation on that which is temporal and onto himself and onto that which is eternal. He told them more about who he is and what he could do for them. He could give them eternal life. And in reply, they then flipped the dialogue back onto themselves and what they could do. What must we do? And Jesus, one more time, redirects them to the truth of who he is. He is the one sent from God, the one sent from heaven, the one that God sent to save, to bring eternal life. He directs their attention back to himself. What does God require of you? What, must, what work must you do? Believe that. Believe I am who I say I am. But here's the kicker. Do you want to know why the human heart absolutely revolts against this idea? Because, I mean, on the surface, it would seem like anyone should rejoice at this. This is wonderful news. This is, this is good news. No works. Just believe. Why would the natural human heart revolt against this? Because it's impossible. When Jesus says believe, he's not talking about intellectually acknowledging his existence. He's not talking about signing up, joining a church, or calling yourself a Christian. He's not talking about associating with a particular denomination or taking on certain labels. He is talking about belief in such a way that is trusting and clinging to who He is from the heart. Belief that is true belief from the heart. Real heart-level change that sees Him as the greatest treasure that one could possibly have. Actual belief. And here's the part that we all know but often don't acknowledge. You can't make yourself do that. You can't force your heart to believe something it does not believe. And every single human heart intuitively knows this. This is, this is why fallen humanity would much rather have works. That I can do. No matter how extreme the work may be, humans can and do just about anything. And history bears that out. We'll pray five times a day as the Muslims do. No problem. Make, make trips to various holy sites, pilgrimages? Sure. Keep the seven sacraments? Okay. Oh, how about disavow marriage and live a celibate life? Thousands have. Take a poverty vow and spend your life begging? 
all the time. Kill others in the service of God. Jesus said that would happen, and the Muslims do it all the time. Sacrifice one's own baby in order to curry favor with God. It's been done all throughout history. People even will practice masochism, self-torture, to atone for sins. I recently even heard about a Filipino Catholic man who has himself nailed to a cross every Easter as an act of penance. And he survives it every time. He's done it 35 times. There is no bounds to which the human heart will seek to work for its salvation because it's controllable. It may be hard. It may be painful. But it's controllable. Humans can make themselves do just about anything to earn their righteousness or their eternal reward or whatever their goal may be. But the one thing that is actually required of us Believe, we cannot do. And we know it. Do you know what this requirement does? It, it confronts the sinfulness of the human heart. And it puts every sinner in a state of total dependence upon God. Total dependence. God must change the heart where there is no hope. And that's where Jesus is going. This is what we're going to see all through John 6. Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. You don't have the ability without the Father. We are all utterly dependent upon God. We are not in control because it is going to be all of grace. But this is what this crowd is going to continue to revolt against. Their tragedy only gets worse as this thing progresses. They would rather maintain control than acknowledge that reality. Which is why they want to work. Give me some works. But true belief requires a changed heart. Which is not a work of man. But it is the work of God. Now, we, we will progress further in this discourse next week, but I, I want to end our time today just returning back to our original questions. Why are you here? Why are you following Jesus? Why do you call yourself a Christian? Motive matters. Do, do not be deceived. You cannot deceive Christ. Let me ask you this. Do you truly believe in such a way that your heart, your heart is clinging to Him for who He is? Or is there some other motivation? Here's some simple diagnostic questions that I think you should give serious thought to. Do you see Jesus as a means to serve your life in any capacity? Or conversely, do you see your life as a means to serve Jesus? Do you see Jesus as a good addition to your life? Or do you see Jesus as life? 
To live is Christ, right? Don't, don't rush to answer these. Give, give it some thought. Is He your greatest treasure? Or is your felt love for Him based upon what He can do for you? If, if like Job, He stripped everything from you, your family, your health, your financial stability, your friends, even your sleep, would you still love Him? Would you still worship Him? Because those who have truly seen the glory of Christ would. They will cling to Christ no matter what. But they also know how fickle they are. And they know that if Christ does not cling to them, there is no hope. The true believer is utterly dependent upon God from beginning to end, from the start of their faith to the end of their faith, and they see Christ as their greatest treasure. My prayer is that that defines you. And if it does not, your only hope is to cry out to God for mercy. There's no work that I can give you. You are dependent upon Him. Your hope is to run to Christ for mercy. Not to add religious activity, but to run to Christ for mercy. And if you do, you will see in this discourse that he promised he will never cast you out. He won't. All who come to him, he will raise up on the last day. I would encourage you to run to Christ for mercy. Let's pray. Father, what a sobering situation is unfolding in this chapter of John's gospel. Lord, I pray that you would help us to heed the warnings here, that you would not allow us to run to a deceived heart but rather to run to Christ. Lord, for those who are here whose hearts are dull or dead, would you awaken them today? Father, would you show them the glory of your Son that they may feed upon him for eternity, that they may find him as their all-satisfying source of eternal life. And for those of us who have seen Christ as such, would you help us to continue to find our satisfaction in him every day? Would you cling to us that we may cling to Christ, that we may be presented before you one day blameless in glory? That is our hope, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and close.